Chapter Seven of The Directory of the Devout Life by F. B. Meyer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Seven, Love Against Anger. Matthew Chapter Five, Verses Twenty-One to Twenty-Six. They of old time, the philosophers and legislators of mankind saw that murderous anger strikes at the very existence of the human family and must be arrested. They therefore prohibited it, and accompanied their prohibition by a threat of condemnation before their high courts. Whosoever shall kill, they said, shall be in danger of the judgment. But neither prohibition nor threatening availed. The dams they built were all too weak to resist the tides of hatred and revenge that swept against their frail resistance men assented to their laws, that they were good. In their saner moments they acquiesced and assisted. But when the storm arose within, they were swept headlong from the thought to the wish, from the wish to the fully formed purpose, from purpose to word, and from word to act. Then the love of God incarnate stood amongst men. His legislation began further back, in the genesis of sin. He does not deal with the act of murder, but sees, first, the explosion of wrath in speech. Fool. Then behind this passes to the feeling of dislike. Vain fellow. And behind this, again the anger of the heart, concealed from all eyes but his. In his judgment chamber such anger is as evil as murder is at the bar of man, he meets out to it the same condemnation that human society allots to the murderer. He says that every one who is angry with his brother is in danger of the judgment court, constituted to deal with murder. He does not say, Thou shalt not kill, because he deals with the springs of will, and thought, and action, creating a clean heart, renewing a right spirit, removing the evil disposition out of which murder springs, what need to tell a man that he must not kill his brother when he has been led to love him as himself? Our Lord refers to two tribunals of the Jewish commonwealth, the local magistrate's court, which had the power of life and death, and inflicted death by beheading, and the Sanhedrin, or final court of appeals, in Jerusalem, whose sentence of death was executed by stoning. There was a still more terrible fate than either, when the body of a criminal was cast forth as refuse into the valley of Gehenna, here described as the hell of fire, because fires were always burning in its forbidding precincts to destroy the rubbish and garbage that would have poisoned the city's health. Where there is no system of drainage, as in eastern cities, the pariah dog, the fire, and the worm are indispensable. In Christ's kingdom, unwarrantable anger would be liable to the lower court, the anger that vented itself in slighting and contemptuous phrase to the higher, and the anger that exploded in vehement and passionate epithets to the fate of a castaway. He did not go beyond this, because the crime of murder would be impossible to those in whose hearts the first sparks had been judged and condemned. In the legislation of Christ, the man that hates his brother is a murderer, and any that allow hate to smolder unchecked and unrepented are guilty of a capital offence against his laws, and forfeit all the rights and privileges of his kingdom, in the same way as murder causes the murderer to forfeit all the rights and privileges of the nation to which he belongs. These are solemn words. 
they are quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. They pierce to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and criticize the thoughts and intents of the heart. They make us look up at this humblest and meekest of men, speaking with such authority, as he sets himself above the level of old time, with his majestic, I say unto you, and, lo, his eyes are as a flame of fire. Oh, soul of man, he looks into thee and through thee. Art thou angry with thy brother with the heat of a selfish and unjustifiable anger? Thou hast already been summoned to Christ's bar. Art thou cherishing bitter contempt toward him? Thou hast already been condemned to suffer the death of the blasphemer, for thou art cursing one made in the image of God. Art thou flaming with vehement wrath, like a burning furnace? Thou art already in the hell of fire. It needs not that thou shouldst wait for dissolution of soul and body. The flames of hell have already fastened on thee. Thy sin is automatic in the penal suffering it inflicts. Thus from our heart we come to justify Christ, and realize that he is greater than the greatest sons of the old time. He goes deeper still, and shows how we may deal with the first motions of our spirit against the ill-feeling which, after long smoldering, breaks out into so great a holocaust. So often we are angry with people whom we have wronged. There is, therefore, no better way of saving us from explosions of anger than by undoing the wrong, so soon as we become conscious of it in the clear light of God's presence. For this reason our Lord bids us find out the brother whom we have wronged, and make amends. Again, when we review the past hours in the twilight of any ordinary day, we often become aware that, though we have not allowed our ill-feeling to have its way, yet we have given some manifestation of it in a coldness of manner or change in behavior which must have been noticed by our brother, our former friend, and have rankled deeply in his mind. The symptom of our altered feeling towards him may have been very slight, but quite sufficient to indicate, like the storm signal on the coast, that there has been a depression in the atmosphere of our soul, and a storm is brewing. There is no more certain method of staying the progress of a tempest of anger than by at once becoming reconciled to the brother over that one small detail in which our antagonism has revealed itself. For each of these reasons, therefore, it is accorded to the deepest philosophy of the soul that our Lord bids us go to any one who may justly have some cause of complaint against us because of our manner, speech, or act. The altar, of which the Master speaks, denotes some act of self-surrender to his adorable service which we are eager to make. Beside it stands the high priest, waiting to consummate our gift, adding to it the merit of his intercession. The light of the Shekinah fire, which waits to consume the gift, is shining with intense brilliancy. All is prepared for the devout act of the soul which, constrained by the mercies of God, is about to present itself a holy, reasonable, and living sacrifice. Suddenly our great Melchizedek turns a searching light upon the hours which have recently passed. Every incident stands as clearly revealed as the objects in a landscape illumined by the lightning flash at midnight, and we hear his voice saying solemnly and searchingly, Hast thy brother aught against thee? At first we shudder before the inquiry. We are conscious of some hidden wrong. The stiletto with which we struck at him was so sharp and slender that we assured ourselves against ourselves that the thrust must have escaped Christ's notice. 
but now we are aware that he, whose eyes carry the light with which they see, beheld it. We dare not deceive him, but we evade his inquiry by enumerating the many causes of complaint that we have against the very person who has been the subject of our Lord's question. He has not treated me as I had every right to expect. He has been ungrateful, ungracious, intolerant. He has not considered my interests. He has taken advantage of my good will. I can never get on with him. His temperament and mine are so different. Why didst thou give him to me as my brother? Had it been any one else, we could have agreed. Outwardly I have tried to do my best. Canst thou wonder that I hide a grudge in my heart, and that almost involuntarily it betrays its presence? But, after all, the incident was a slight one. No doubt he has forgotten it before now. He is accustomed to give me ugly knocks. Probably his skin is too thick to feel so slight an evidence of my unfriendliness. Again the searching voice inquires, Has thy brother aught against thee? It depends, O oh master, we reply, in what court the case is tried. In any human court, so slight a thing as that which stands revealed in this fierce light would be passed over as too trivial for notice. Before a jury of my friends, or even of my acquaintances, it would be admitted that I had not done anything so very wrong. It might be supposed that I was becoming morbid and introspective were I to take action on such a triviality. Again, that clear, strong voice is heard saying, We will not quibble. Thou knowest that thy brother is suffering, that he is losing faith in thy profession of religion, that he is being prejudiced against me. Thy parrying of my question is thy condemnation. Thou knowest what thou hast done. In excusing, thou accusest thyself. Leave here thy gift at the altar. Go first and be reconciled to him, then return. I will await thee. Though hours may pass, thou wilt find me here. May I not offer my gift now, and then discover my brother? My heart is full of desire. I am eager to be an entire burnt offering to my God. Will not this fervor pass away, and leave me chilled? Not so, the master answers. Thy present gift will not be acceptable to God. The impetuous desire to make it is of the flesh, not of the spirit. If it were of the spirit, there would be no doubt about its ultimate permanence. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of lambs. Be quick. The sky is darkening with night. The road that remains to be traversed by thy brother, who has now become thine adversary, is short. Agree with him quickly, whilst thou art in the way, lest by delay the quarrel between thee and him becomes aggravated, and thou find thyself in difficulties from which extrication will be impossible. Every moment of delay intensifies the sense of injustice, and makes more difficult thy attempt at reconciliation. But he has wronged me, gracious master. Is nothing to be said to him? Not in the first place, is the reply. It is necessary that thou shouldst retract thy part, whatever it may be. Ask his forgiveness for that ruffled feeling, that unkind and harsh bearing, that icy reserve. Pay him any due that he may rightfully claim. Ask his forgiveness as thou wouldst ask God's, and thy approach will bring a flood of repentant and protesting words, which will show that thou hast won thy brother. And if these do not follow, and he receives thine apology as his right, 
or without remark. Still thou hast done thy part, and there is naught to be said against thee further. I will deal with him. Then come, and offer thy gift. What music, then, is in that word, come? All heaven speaks the invitation. Come, says the master, and render thyself a living sacrifice, which is thy reasonable service. Come, and let me make of thee so much as is possible in thy brief life. Come, for all things are ready. And we discovered this, that when we have acted as love should act, not because we feel the love, but because the master bids us, and we simply obey, then the love of God bursts up in our heart like a hot geyser spring, and we find ourselves able to offer our gift to God with an emotion of love that we could never have experienced otherwise. This is the glory of our Lord's teaching, that when we do what is right, altogether apart from the emotion of pleasure or desire, we find ourselves glad to do it. In the right act, there comes the right feeling, and in doing His will, we are able to say, I rejoice to do Thy will, O my God. Try it, O soul of man. Be indifferent to emotion. Act. The emotion will burst out like the flowers that carpet the meadows in May. The birds will sing, the streams will flow, the flowers will appear, because by one act the reign of the Frost King is broken. End of chapter 7